Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Busy week as usual. It's uh, Final Four over NBA, NHL playoffs just around the corner. NFL draft, Major League Baseball, don't look now, but it's opening week, heading to opening week number two, and the Masters, which we'll get to in a minute. And nobody better than the worldwide digital editor for us, Dan Calaruso. What do you What do you have in mind? I know you want to come out of the box first. You know, I, I, I got lost yesterday in the, the Mets shutout victory of the Atlanta Braves to open the season, and I fully expect the Mets to be playing on the last day of the season, but I wanted to talk Final Four. I didn't I was the one American who didn't watch the game last night. How did this Final Four measure up in terms of economic success this year? Was there still the audience? Was there the ad revenue? How are the ratings looking? How's the state of college sports despite the one-and-dones and all the controversy around them? The ratings are almost irrelevant, Dan, because nobody is going to care that much at this time about how many are watching more than where. And, and you got the TV numbers, which people are going to discount because most of the people I talked to yesterday watched watched in, in bars or watched on their iPads or, or watched on, on computers and, and streamed back and forth and got into uh, Facebook and Snapchat issues. So this and the Olympics are the two mega events that are going to redefine how television is measured, which is really important. Having said that, mm. economic impact in the Valley, really good, weather great. Fans coming in, first time the Phoenix area has held the Final Four. And we'll get into stadiums later, but Phoenix is now going to be in a head-to-head competition against Vegas now that they get a stadium for which is the next big southwest desert tourist infrastructure area. They needed this event to kind of stay ahead. They're all winners, but it was huge. And not, you know, not the least of which, by the way, is North Carolina. North Carolina wins, too. North Carolina's been there before. The NCAA has cashed, and Turner have cashed huge checks before. But for the Valley, this is a nice little pivot, a positive pivot? Positive pivot, maybe even transcendent, because a lot of people were talking about how the Cardinal Stadium was great, but it uh, hasn't generated a lot of money for youth sports, and on and on, and multiple Super Bowls, Cardinals playing well, Final Fours, National Championship College, the rotation is there, so Phoenix certainly has pivoted positively, and again, quickly, for North Carolina, you know, Roy Williams coaches in his 100th tournament game, and he ends up winning his third, the, the third championship for North Carolina, what, what, a, what a great, what a great storyline. So, how far would you say the Valley is now ahead of Vegas. What's the head start? 10 years, 15 years for Vegas to become what they've achieved there? I find it ironic that the comparison is there. I grew up in Miami, as you know, and did a whole lot of the sports stuff there. We went from having one AFL franchise, the Dolphins merged into the NFL, three others making it four, then a new stadium, then Super Bowls, then all of the other things that go along with it. Not a dome, so no Final Four. Phoenix, same kind of thing, by the way. No teams, then four. Now they're all looking for the leverage of what the new arenas are going to be like. And in the meantime, Vegas goes from being radioactive, having no teams because of gambling, to the Golden Knights playing this fall, to the Raiders playing three years from now, to two NASCAR races, to the idea that they have a billion seven, billion dollar, seven hundred million dollar stadium that's going to host 
probably regular Super Bowls in the rotation. So your answer is probably six, seven years ahead, but uh, it's going to be an incredible competition for economic impact through sports now between those two destinations. Great. That's interesting. And Vegas probably has some good leverage with the with the tourism revenue, as we've talked about on the show before. It's an interesting region because, you know, it had been a desert um, for American professional sports for a long time. Um, on to something a little bit colder than the Valley. The NHL, um, the players, the teams, the franchises are boycotting, not boycotting, but choosing not to participate in the 2018 Olympics. Are they missing anything by not being in there? Or does everyone who loves hockey already watch hockey and there's no upside to being in the Olympics besides getting your players hurt? Depends on who you talk to. So, you know, everybody talks about these global all-star events as really important for the game until it impacts your player and you're the general manager. So the World Cup of Hockey in September, uh, really good last year. It was an amazing event. Now they're talking about what happens where you have things like the World Baseball Classic, another great event beginning of this year with baseball in Korea and Japan and other places. Hockey is another story because they've been to the Olympics five times in a row. They become very global. The ownership of the content, very important to Gary Bettman, the NHL doesn't own any Olympic content. NBC does. They're friends, but it's not who gets the money on it. And so Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, has said, and he represents the owners on this, we're going to have to go a long way towards sending our players across the globe yet again to Korea and play in the middle of our season. It's not like, Dan, the NBA, where, you know, you play in the Olympics, but that's in the summer between the seasons. And this is a major, major difference. Right. It stretches them, doesn't interrupt the season. It doesn't interrupt the revenue stream. And my my take on it is I, I don't really see where the NHL owners have a ton to lose. You know, there are viable leagues. You know, I watch Russian Hockey League games on my New York cable system. Like, there's, there are viable leagues in most countries that love hockey. I don't think anyone's missing out, and I think hockey is not the, uh, you know, it's not the sport that the casual fan watches in the Olympics and goes crazy for. I was just having this debate with Alex Cohen, the producer of this show. He thinks there's some casual fans to lure in. I don't think hockey is an acquired taste. I think hockey is something that you're kind of born into and you dig or you get obsessed with, but I don't think the Olympics is the place that you find it. Hey, another piece of that, though, too, is that let's remember Gary Bettman's not pulling the American team. He's pulling the NHL players or saying they're not going, which is a predominant number of players from the teams all over the globe. So on the one hand, you'll have the Olympics an entirely different game. It'll be the minor leaguers and the amateurs. On the other hand, the NHL sustains itself through February, which is important to them. Right, right, right. So let's talk, Rick, a little bit on baseball. We talked about Vegas a little bit, and it's opening day for Major League Baseball. And we we talked about Vegas and the Raiders, and you had made the point to me earlier this week that the Oakland A's are the next big job for Oakland. They have to keep that team in town. And it it struck me as, you know, Oakland, as it's becoming a better city, you know, it's becoming a real suburb of Silicon Valley. Real estate prices are up. the, The good restaurants are opening there. Oakland is taking on a decidedly different tone than it would have a few years ago. Yet, its sports teams are slowly draining out. What do they have to do to keep the A's? Well, they have to return the phone calls right away and make them the center of attention. It is kind of interesting. Mayor Libby Schaff had made the argument through her task force that the Raiders and A's should share the property like they've done for a number of years, but the property alone doesn't get the deal done. And when the NFL said it's the same plan you put on the table a couple of years ago, Vegas comes up with $750 million and 
another $200 million in infrastructure. That kind of sets the bar for what it means for a football stadium, but the baseball guys are looking and saying, look, we need it as well. And I, I got to tell you, from all of the deals that I've ever done, when a team leaves, like the Texans when they left uh, Houston before the Titans and mm. the Rams uh, this time and the Cardinals before in St. Louis, mayors tend to return your phone call if you're the last one standing. <laughs> so right, right. You better make absolutely sure this time that the deal happens. Remember, the Warriors are going across the street or across right, the that's, bay. That's what and, I meant, yeah. Yeah, and the A's are probably a very important civic piece of Oakland more than ever before, A, because they lost the two other teams, and B, because of what you just said, that other parts of Oakland are recovering. This would be a really damaging blow. Yeah, it's like San Francisco is swallowing up the whole region as, a, as an identity, right? And that's, that's Oakland's struggle at this point. Um, you're, you're at the Masters this week? Yeah, and, and the Masters is a really interesting event because, as we know, I'm an intense golf guy. I play 200 times a year, but you don't have to be to follow the Masters. It is an event, as sappy people say, like no other, and it's the only major golf tournament that does not, does not rotate from venue to venue. And so it's an event that generates maybe $250 million. It includes dollars that a private company will not talk about, but the badges are going for an average of 1500 to $4,000, notwithstanding 50 dollars on the face. I mean, nobody's ever paid 50. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's an incredible event for a lot of different reasons. And in many ways, it is the barometer of the future of golf, positive or negative. Well, let me ask you a question, because we've talked a lot about the future of golf on this show. And the absence of Tiger Woods is a marquee crossover star, and golf is really looking for one now. Can the Masters stay the Masters with this both financial aura and spiritual aura around it? If People in America just aren't playing golf as much as they used to. Not as many people are playing. They're not buying the shirts. They're not buying the clubs. They're not buying the balls. How does golf, writ large, keep the Masters the Masters? There are a lot of people who are saying golf is turning around, uh, but we'll see what the numbers are. 37.5 million people last year said they're very or somewhat interested in playing golf. 2.5 million trying for the first time. Now, you know, we got to see who gave it up. Tiger Woods is not playing, and he still drives the needle. And just to give you one quick number about the business of golf, the total purse for the Pro Tour when Tiger first won his first Masters in 1996, about a million five. This last year, the average total purse, about seven, about a 352% increase. The global reach is up. The impact on golf is up. People have other diversions. They're playing other sports. That's true. But at the end of the day, when people want to play golf, the best way to solidify them is to sit them in front of the TV or bring them to Augusta and watch the Masters. Same for you. You've got an open invitation, and I know it can extend it gracefully because you'll never go. <laughs> yeah, you could. You be pretty sure I won't take you up on a Masters invite. No, but but you know, you mentioned golf and what it means, and it's always been about Ben Hogan and then Arnold Palmer. First year he hasn't been with us, and then Jack Nicklaus, and then Tiger Woods. It's all about the superstar and who's the next big thing. Well, Jordan Spieth was the next big thing in 2015. Stumbled a bit at the Masters in 16, and he's back with the vengeance this year. Everybody's following him to see what happens. Our interview today, it's with his dad. But it's not about Jordan Spieth. It's about Sean Spieth, the co-founder of MVP Index, the company that tracks social media as it's impacting endorsers for corporations, for teams, and for leagues. An incredible business case for social media, especially as it relates to the future of why corporations are spending money. And I've got to tell you, when they have a case study, who better to study than Jordan Spieth? 
Sean Spieth coming up in the interview right now. Founder of originally Stout, but MVP MVP Analytics. You're here as a speaker and as a guest of the uh, foremost analytics conference in, uh, in the country, and you have invented uh, a hell of a product. Why don't you tell people about it? Well, what we uh, what we set out to do is find a way to become the currency for social media, sports, and entertainment. Uh, it's kind of that simple. So we go from traditional media and the measurement platforms there to digital and social being the fastest growing piece and the most engaging piece of digital media. Um, there wasn't an index, there wasn't a real good measurement standard, so that's our mission. And I know for a fact years ago you were looking to try to figure out what the niche was and what do you do first? Do you develop the methodology and perfect it? Do you identify who the corporate clients are and sell it in or is it a combination of both? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's new. Right. Um, so there wasn't a proven methodology. There are traditional measurement metrics, which is really the foundation, right? right? Impressions, CPM, CPCs. So those are the foundation of valuation. But how do you amplify social? What factors really make sense? And we used some expertise that we have within the company, and we went. But we had to go out to to, to clients, and those who write the checks ultimately right. for the ads and for the analytics and ask them, what's important? Does this make sense? So about two years worth of working through our platform and the weightings and how we actually get to our calculations is uh, probably the most critical part of the process. The notion that an endorsement deal is cut at a golf course because a CEO likes the way somebody plays golf or basketball or whatever, those days are long gone, maybe never happened. I mean, the analytics really carry the day, don't they? I think that's the case going forward. Yeah. Some of that. I mean, some obviously it's Right. People are so passionate about yeah. sports right. and certain products and product categories you know, fit right. really well in certain sports categories. So before you get into analytics, you know where you want to be, you know where you should be um, for a lot of corporate brands. But now to stay there, to grow your investment, you've got to have the data to support it. Whether it's a, you know, a team in the NBA or it's, a, uh, or it's an individual athlete you're supporting or you're getting into esports and you're trying to figure out where and when and in, in, in what capacity. What's so unique about the product? We're tracking everything. Uh, every conversation around professional sports in the US and Europe, um, and I say everything on the major plat social platforms. So we go back eight, eight, eight and a half, nine years now with data so we can show what's trending, what conversations happened eight years ago for a brand around their endorsements and their sponsorships relative to a certain league or team or, or set of athletes that they endorse. From a social media perspective. From a social media perspective specifically and only. So we're focused there. We can plug in and be complementary to other solutions that are very well known. Right. We can be part of a consultant's solution as an independent good housekeeping seal of approval, right. third party validation. So I think that's what's unique is that we're looking at the whole landscape most analytics are done around a brand, a team, a league, or a specific asset. So, background of Sean Spieth, Dallas-based engineer? Dallas-based entrepreneur. Dallas-based entrepreneur. Right. Sales and marketing background. We've got, uh, we've got engineers and, and data guys a lot smarter than me, thank goodness, running the, uh, the platform. Well, but they're smarter in different areas. So the epiphany moment, which is really kind of a visionary perspective, you see the value of social media and you obviously see how athletes move the needle, the ultimate irony given your son. But you decide that there is something special. When was the epiphany to say, 
look at social media, this is a happenstance kind of thing, it's arbitrary, we're going to enter the field and I'm going to do it. Yeah, the stars kind of aligned. Yeah. You know, I had I had a couple of kids as athletes, yeah. um, but one of them turned in professional and went out and talked to a lot of brands and a lot of agents and agencies and asked, how do you value them and their relationships with their brand sponsors? Who should we be aligned with? Who should Jordan be aligned with? Yeah. Who should you know up and coming yeah. actors, actresses, singers, yeah. football players be aligned with? And they were traditional measurement, traditional answers, and there really wasn't an awful lot of thought giving to social alignment, right? Who do they engage with? Who engages with golf? Who engages with 19, 20, 21 year olds that are from certain places? So you have the ability to sit around at Thanksgiving dinner and actually talk to Jordan about what works and what doesn't from a social media perspective. So it's the ultimate test case, kind of interesting. It's, it, it's fun and at times, uh, depending upon what happened a week or two prior, yeah, clearly. it may be something we choose not to talk about right. so we can enjoy Thanksgiving. Right, I did, I did. I, we're not supposed to, I, I stayed away from you uh, after the Masters for a few weeks, by the way. Yeah, so, yeah. I stayed away from my son too. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. So this is going also to a New England distribution audience. We don't need to know the numbers, but give us a kind of a generalization Who's hot? Um, we don't forget who's not. Who's hot in New England sports? It's obviously Brady and Under Armour, but and Gronk's at the top of our index in football. Not surprisingly, yeah. because of the way he engages with his audience. Right. So for the right products, the right markets, the right targets, yeah. it's he's as good as it gets. Tom Brady's a totally different personality. Right. Obviously, fits other segments extremely well. The Celtics do some really cool fanatical things, yeah. as do a lot of the teams here. So it's it's interesting. But what we see is we're not just comparing NBA teams, NBA teams, or football players to football players. We're looking across whatever horizon makes sense for that asset or for that group. Are, are the Red Sox going to miss Ortiz from a social media perspective? Absolutely. Yeah, he's got a several million dollar social media footprint. Right. And it was enormous last year. He's done a really nice job of keeping his engagement with his fans. Right, and, and hockey, uh, are you a hockey fan? Uh, I'm a little bit a little of a bit. hockey fan, yeah. So the Bruins have had a long-term tradition here, so they've got uh, a social media following as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's, it's interesting. We, we do some work for some hockey teams and to see how the local and regional engagement fits relative to the top brands in the sport and right. what works for them on a national level. Lots of really, really good opportunities with regional partnerships um, and you wouldn't you wouldn't expect who some of the brands are so we'll go look at quick serve restaurants yeah. and the traditional companies that the teams right. are engaging and selling aren't the right fit socially so there are some social only engagements some social only endorsements now that are happening for teams um, certainly for athletes and entertainers it's been the case for a little, little longer than it is for teams and leagues. So you have bridged the gap and do entertainers now as well? We have. I mean, we've done it specifically for brand clients that yeah. wanted us to look at influencers in certain segments. Um, entertainment's large, huge, and it's fragmented. So we've wanted to become the de facto standard, become the currency in sports, and then with that brand, with that ability to go back to our clients and say, you've got YouTube influencers, you've got influencers in music, yeah. you've got influencers in all kinds of different genres. Our platform works, it doesn't matter what the asset is, the platform works. We'll who, apply it. Who needs this more? The corporation about to make an endorsement decision, uh, the athlete who needs to respond better on social media, the teams who need to keep their athletes in check or promote them, or a combination? Um, I think the brands, first and foremost. 
there are a lot of really good consultants that can help the individual athletes yeah. and their agencies do a really nice job of helping them with their brand, their personal brand, their social activation. Uh, same with the teams. It's a little smaller environment to operate in. Where we really add value is when we look at the entire ecosystem and you can just pull things out that you can't see if you're looking at a region or you're looking at a specific sport. So, bottom line of MVP index and shameless plug, we've been partners on the Power 100 methodology on course, on field, off course. Nobody, the interesting thing that I found after doing that is that it's very little other research that can be delivered to people on how, who moves the needle and how they move the needle relative to on-field and off-field performance. You'd have thought it had been done earlier, but that's precisely why you're in the business. That's exactly why we're in the business. Yeah. Five-year plan, what does MVP look like five years from now? Um, we, have a, we have an opportunity to go from a B2B platform yeah. for the advertisers and the brands that are trying to maximize their endorsements to taking every influencer that's relevant or every segment that really wants to do the best job they can do yeah. and understand where they are and what they're worth. So it can be every youth soccer player, it could be every youth athlete, it could be every band member that wants to opt into our platform, get best practices, kind of pay for a premium service. That's, that's the big, big opportunity. How long does it take Madison Avenue to get unlazy and catch up and really evaluate for purposes of their own corporate clients, how to monetize based on social media, based on the internet, and get out of the whole rut of traditional advertising buyers. Well, I think it's happening now. It, it, it is happening now. Sports, live sports yeah. is what people want to watch on TV. Right. So you have a little bit of a paradigm shift that takes, takes longer than a brand that's progressive and knows I can go sell 250,000 pair of shoes to this market because I've got this celebrity attached to it. And that, that micro-targeting is happening. Some very, very intelligent solutions. All we're trying to do is measure that and then compare it to every other type of activation yeah. that's going on and let the marketers know what works and relatively speaking, what's valuable. It's an incredible context too because you're a brand guy and you are a do the right thing guy in that context. You've got an incredible daughter. You've got a son that's a, an amazing basketball player, but also academic All-American Brown. And you've got a, a golfer who's probably the best golfer on the planet, but he's also one of the best human beings on the planet. So your wife did a good job. I was just going to say, Rick, <laughs> we need to thank my wife for all of that. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobtay. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick, and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.